0: You were saying like, uh, you don't want extremists. Some people will see this and they'll think you're an extremist. Maybe not an Islamic extremist, maybe not a right-wing or whatever, but they will think you're some kind of gun extremist. I mean, what would you say to that? So if other people see us as extremists, that's okay. But what I can tell is, we do not want harm to anyone. We want everyone to live peacefully amongst each other. And we want people to have the freedom of speech, the right to bear arms. If that's too politically extreme for you, fuck yourself. Commanding you to bow down. I'm on your side. By branding you as a rebel. But you're not. A traitor. This isn't freedom. We are not the government. The government is not us. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Dean O. Files. Being recorded on this Tuesday, the 12th of October, 2021. Opening up with uh, Jay Stark from the Popular Front uh, documentary, short documentary called Plastic Defense. Jay Stark, uh, everybody, uh, it, w- it was this week. or last week, this week, over the weekend, it was, I guess, revealed to the community at large that J. Stark had passed in June. J. Stark is the man who invented, uh, the FGC-9. This is, uh... It, it, J. Stark was responsible for a great leap forward in liberating people, generally. And so, uh, if you would like to honor that memory, print yourself a gun. Um... Doesn't have to be an FGC9, that's kind of a project. Print a Glock. Print something. But... Print yourself a gun. Start printing things. Do that, uh, if you want to honor Jay Stark's memory. There's also, uh... Some cool STLs. There's an STL somebody made of Jay Stark. It's like a bust. I might, uh, I might link that. But I will certainly link the Plastic Defense um, the plastic defense documentary in the show notes. And that's all I really have to say about that. I didn't know him personally. I'm kind of tertiarily related to the 3D printing community. But I've spoken to people who did know him. And by all accounts, uh, an absolute hero. So... With that out of the way, let's move on. Uh, Opening up with an interesting article. This is the second interesting article in two shows where the interesting article is written by Josh Blackman. This is not on purpose, I promise. It's just The Volt Conspiracy is a blog that I check relatively consistently and he happens to have written a couple of interesting things in very quick succession. This published on the 11th. On the Volk conspiracy, district court Jacobson essentially applied rational basis review and found that the vaccine mandate was rational. I'm going to read the first paragraph and then contextualize it for you a little bit. On Friday, a federal judge rejected a challenge to Michigan state vaccine mandate. Uh, Eugene blogged about the case, and there's a hyperlink there. The court except Eugene is Eugene Volk, by the way, the guy for whom the Volk conspiracy is named. Uh, back to the story. The court accepts the mythicized account of Jacobson. The court finds that Jacobson, quote, essentially applied rational basis review and that Supreme Court precedent is, quote, binding. To support that conclusion, the court does not cite any Supreme Court cases, not even Jacobson itself. He couldn't because the word rational, I should say it couldn't, because the word rational appears nowhere in the district court decision. Instead, the court cites Judge Easterbrook's decision in Klassen v. Trustees of Indiana University. Justice Gorsuch's concurrence in Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn v. Cuomo And Harris uh, v. University of Massachusetts, Lowell. Um, Okay, so that's the first paragraph there. Uh, Actually, let me read the next sentence. Let me be very clear here. There is no binding Supreme Court precedent holding that vaccine mandates are reviewed with rational basis review. Okay. Which is an important piece of information. Jacobson v. Massachusetts. This is the case which uh, upheld the idea of a uh, vaccine mandate with a buyout option, basically a fee or fine that you have to pay if you don't get the vaccine, Um, some reasonable fee or fine. What exactly that means is entirely undefined, but Jacobson v. Massachusetts is considered to be the legal basis by which the government can force people to take a vaccine or pay a ticket or whatever. Uh, it It wouldn't be a ticket. It's not allowed to be criminal, I don't think, so it would be a fee or a fine. Um in any case Jacobson v Massachusetts was a foundational sort of opinion with regard to uh the uh the case of Buck v Bell Buck v Bell was a case which upheld forced sterilization the majority opinion written by uh Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr just Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr uh in which he says three generations of imbeciles are enough, etc., etc. The man was an absolute scumbag. But Buck V Bell refers directly to Jacobson v. Massachusetts. Uh, so I I I I think it's possible to get uh a little bit of movement around Jacobson, a little bit of limitation of Jacobson, uh when with some of the cases that are going to come up regarding vaccine mandates. But that is why Jacobson matters, and that is why. The level of review with which Jacobson is reviewed matters. And um, I don't know if I've talked about the levels of constitutional review before. Rational basis, intermediate scrutiny, and strict scrutiny. Um, I probably have somewhere. I know I'm going to on the Second Amendment show, because I have to, to contextualize that conversation as well. But just a very quick rundown rational basis is can the court come up with any rational reason that the law would exist and if so it's a fine law uh intermediate scrutiny is much more complex uh strict scrutiny well intermediate scrutiny is not much more complex it's just it's all word games at this point anyway intermediate and strict scrutiny are both uh increasingly strict from rational basis where by the time you get to strict scrutiny you have to uh the government has to show, a, I think, a compelling government interest, and they have to show that the law is the least restrictive means by which they can achieve that interest. I think that's strict scrutiny and how it's worded. I always have to look it up when I talk about it. But, um, in any case, don't take that as gospel. But in any case, rational basis is the... It, it, it's really hard for a law to fail under rational basis review. But... Um, Here we have courts saying that Jacobson was a rational basis decision. There's no basis for that. Uh, And this article goes over that fact. Moving on to the news. That's going to be linked in the show notes as well. Um, I'll just read the headline again. District Court Jacobson essentially applied rational basis review and found the vaccine mandate was rational. Written by Josh Blackman, published on the 11th. Moving on to news, published on the 8th. Written by Adam Steinbaugh at thefire.org. Emerson College pooh free speech, deflecting criticism over censorship of China kind of sus stickers. Emerson hides tweets critical of China's government. This is, a whole, this is a hilarious thing that I saw on Twitter, actually, is where I first saw this. The, there were these stickers on Emerson. Uh, uh, I believe it was just, they were just being put up around the university, but it says China kind of sus, and it's got uh, one of the Amogus characters on it um it was a funny sticker and their reaction to it was even funnier um anyway let's read from the story (sighs) oh bother tweets as innocent as an image of winnie the pooh feel the sting of emerson's censorship the first rule of holes is simple but important when you find yourself in one stop digging the first rule of censorship is just as simple and just as important when you're called out for censorship, stop censoring, censor, uh, stop censoring. I'm sorry, I almost read that as if it was two sentences, uh, or one sentence. When you're called out for censorship, stop censoring. Censorship in healthy societies tends to draw attention, making it an effective way to temper public criticism. Emerson College is uh, learning that the hard way. This week, the colleges face mounting criticism over its suspension and investigation into a chapter of TPUSA. Uh, That's Turning Point USA, because it distributed stickers that say, quote, China kind of sus, sus being slang for suspicious. As Fire explained here earlier this week and in the letter to Emerson's administration, the stickers are protected by Emerson's strong promises to its students that they enjoy freedom of expression. Even if the stickers were construed as critical of Chinese people, as opposed to criticism of China's government, the stickers borrow, uh, this is a parent, the stickers borrow uh, the hammer and sickle emblem of the ruling Communist Party and refer to China, not Chinese people. The distribution of written materials others find offensive is not alone uh, I don't like the sentence. "The distribution of written materials others find offensive is not enough alone to amount to discriminatory harassment. Unfortunately, Emerson's response to the stickers wouldn't be the last time that week the college fumbled its response to speech about China's government. As critics took to social media, Emerson began using a Twitter feature that allows users to hide unwelcome replies from general view. Hidden replies can be seen by clicking the view hidden replies on individual tweets. Emerson's ham-handed efforts at censorship soon found it with his hand caught in the honey jar. Doubling down on censorship, Emerson hid a variety of tweets, including some that consisted of no more than a picture of Winnie the Pooh, an image that has become an emblem of resistance to China's state censorship as authorities have cracked down on comparisons of President Xi Jinping to the cartoon bear. Uh, this was pointed out on Twitter, and then there's just several pictures of it uh, down at the bottom of the story. This is not a good look for Emerson. And it's doing its best to make sure you can't see it. Fascinating little thing. Um, the Emerson College bio... I'm opening this in a new tab real quick. Where independent minds give voice to daring ideas. Whatever you say, Emerson. Whatever you say. Moving forward. Bad news. Uh, well... I don't know if it's bad news. It's sad news because there could have been some interesting information to come out of this. It's not like it would have changed anything, but in any case, from Al Jazeera, found this via uh, antiwar.com. Here's a cool thing about antiwar.com. If you are, if you're thinking, if you're like me, and you think to yourself every now and then, self, I haven't really heard anything about X for a while. Um... For example, Yemen, which is what I did. I, I hadn't heard anything about Yemen for a while. And so I said, ah, let's see what antiwar.com has about Yemen. So you go to antiwar.com, you go to news, you go to the regional uh, link, and then you just click on Yemen. Or uh, I click on, it's, it's, you have a list of regions. You click on that, and then you can click on a specific country. And it just gives you the news for that country. And it was in doing so that I discovered this story from Al Jazeera a major setback UN ends Yemen war crimes probe rights groups criticized the move with Dutch ambassador Peter Becker saying the council has failed the people of Yemen I was considering doing a bad Dutch accent but I elected not to you're welcome this is published on the 7th of October the UN Human Rights Council voted to end the mandate of experts investigating war crimes in Yemen in a blow to Western nations who wanted to probe the probe to continue. The 47-member council voted against renewing the mandate of the group of imminent uh, international and regional experts on Yemen, GEE. That's not all those letters. On Thursday, which in August 2018 reported evidence of possible war crimes committed by all sides, including a military coalition led by Saudi Arabia, which the United States is funding and supporting. Saudi Arabia has been in the... That's not in the story. That's That's my editorializing. Saudi Arabia has been in the past, but it's true. Uh, accused of attempting to shut down the investigation, with Human Rights Watch in September 2018 saying Rida, uh, I never know how to pronounce this name I, I've only ever said Raida, but it might not, but it sounds too close to Raida it feels strange to say it that way was making a blatant attempt to avoid scrutiny for its conduct in Yemen. The Human Rights Council in 2017 agreed Rida, by the way, when I say that name I mean the capital of Saudi Arabia, um the Human Rights Council in 2017 agreed to send a group of eminent experts to Yemen to investigate abuse nearly two years after the Saudi-led coalition launched a devastating military offensive in support of internationally recognized President uh, Abdu Rabu Mansur Hadi, uh, who was toppled by the Houthi rebels. The Saudi-led coalition has been accused of bombing schools, hospitals, and other civilian targets, while the Houthi rebels, who control much of northern Yemen, were also accused of major violations. Catherine Shockdom, former Security Council consultant on Yemen, told Al Jazeera that the vote was not a surprise. However, she added, a lot of people will be disappointed because it's a failure on the part of the UN, but from a political perspective, finding the real solution to the ongoing crisis in Yemen, pointing fingers may not be the right way to reach a peaceful resolution to the conflict. Oh, goodness. I'm going to skip, there's a section here on the first draft resolution. I'm going to skip down Saudi lobby. The Cairo Institute for Human Rights Studies said the vote amounted to a blatant attempt by Saudi and its allies to ensure blanket impunity for themselves after having been linked to war crimes and other grave violations of international law in the country. Rights activists said this week that Saudi Arabia lobbied heavily against the Western resolution. Yada, yada, yada. Uh, I'm going to stop reading this story there. It'll be linked to the show notes. Um, Yeah, so they are no longer, the UN is no longer investigating war crimes in Yemen. That's sad. Uh, like I said, I don't think it would have changed anything either way, but this is, this is the, this is one of the worst things happening. Scott Horton's fond of saying it's one of the worst things happening on the planet today. What's happening in Yemen and the United States is, is a responsible party. This is something nobody's speaking about either, but we will move on. Uh, from reason posted, uh, Oh, this is from the November, 2021 issue of reason. I'm not going to read this whole thing. It's going to be rather long, I think, but. Might as well link this as another interesting article if it's going to be that long. I wouldn't call it news, but it's, uh, well, it is news, but I wouldn't call it uh, simply news. A drone whistleblower goes to prison. Too often, the government punishes citizens who reveal the state's true behavior to their fellow Americans. This is written by Scott Shackford. A federal judge in August sentenced Daniel Hale to 45 months in federal prison for informing the American public about secret drone killings by the U.S. military. Hale is a former Air Force intelligence analyst who shared classified documents with reporter Jeremy Scahill. Those documents, published in 2015 at The Intercept and in a book called The Assassination Complex, revealed that secret drone assassinations in Afghanistan, Yemen, and Somalia had likely killed untold numbers of innocent people, a fact the U.S. government had concealed. Hale's leaks showed that drone assassinations under President Barack Obama were not what the American public believed them to be, The administration insisted that its secret, quote, kill lists of terrorists was carefully vetted and that drone strikes were deployed only to kill targets of uh, the government and military believed it was not feasible to arrest. The reality, Hale revealed, was that the targeted strikes regularly resulted in the deaths of bystanders. The government hid this fact by classifying anybody killed in a U.S. drone strike as a militant, even when he was not a target. This obfuscation allowed the government to insist it was minimizing civilian casualties. Uh... You know what? There's not that much left. I'll just finish it. I thought this was going to be longer than this. The feds caught up with Hale in 2019 and charged him with espionage. Hale acknowledged that he violated the law and pleaded guilty to sharing classified information, but he refused to apologize. In a lengthy handwritten letter to the U.S. District Judge Liam O'Grady, Hale described an incident in which a drone strike he had helped arrange failed to kill its target, an Afghan man allegedly involved in making car bombs, and instead killed the man's five-year-old daughter. Quote, now, whenever I encounter an individual who thinks that drone warfare is justified and reliably keeps America safe, I remember that time and ask myself how I could possibly believe that I'm a good person, deserving of my life and the right to pursue happiness, Hale wrote. Prosecutors argue that Hale leaked his documents to boost his ego, and that doing so put Americans at risk. Quote, Hale did not in any way contribute to the public debate about how we fight wars. Eat shit, US, uh, Assistant U.S. Attorney Gordon Cromberg said in court. Quote, all he did was endanger the people who are doing the fighting. Fucking what? Uh, Hale's sentence is an example of how the federal government misuses laws meant for spies who reveal classified information to our country's enemies. Too often it punishes citizens who reveal the government's true behavior to their fellow Americans. Uh, uh, this, this prosecutor's position, he didn't in any way contribute to the public debate about how we fight wars. All he did was endanger the people who were doing the fighting. With, from, from a container in Nevada with a joystick. Is that who's endangered by this? I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand. Anyway, uh, let's continue with privacy invasion and uh, how privacy is dying in this country. The government's secret Google search warrant trap, written by Andrew O'Sullivan, published also on the 12th. Keyword warrants came up recently. Uh, I believe there's an FBI case going to the Supreme Court that deals with keyword warrants uh continuing it's been 20 years since 9-11 which means it's also been 20 years since america's public debates about government surveillance under laws at the patriot act it's a bit amusing to look back and see commentators clashing over hot button topics like whether the government should have access to things like library records two decades two plus wars and wow it's like seven wars and too many exposed warrantless government surveillance programs later, the idea that the biggest threat to liberty is Uncle Sam scrounging around to find who checked out chemistry books from a Connecticut branch library is almost charming. We have surveillance fatigue. A lot of people just assume that everything they do online is immediately hoovered up and stored in a massive desert national security agency data center for eternity. It's not a bad heuristic, but but there are still some procedural hurdles for feds to get their hands on what they want. One of them was recently publicized in a series of court documents obtained by Forbes. It's called a keyword warrant, and it's basically an open request for information on anyone who searches for particular terms online. Instead of the government saying, quote, I want all the arson suspect, I want all of arson suspect John Doe's Google searches, it's I want information on all the people who search Google for arson. The problem is evident. In the first scenario, investigators have already determined a suspect based on some evidence, and they present to a judge the typical standard for requesting a search warrant. In the second scenario, the government is asking search engines to provide data that they can use for whatever reason. It's an open invitation for a fishing expedition, and many innocent people could get caught in the net. There's more on that as well, but we have so much news today. Speaking of Google, from Axios, published on the 7th. Google and YouTube to prohibit ads and monetization on climate denial content. Google and YouTube on Tuesday announced a new policy that prohibits climate deniers from being able to monetize their content on its platform via ads or creator payments. Google advertisers and publishers, as well as YouTube creators, will be prohibited from making ad revenue off content that contradicts well-established scientific consensus around the existence and causes of climate change. The company's ads team said in a statement, quote, this includes content referring to climate change as a hoax or a scam. Claims denying that long-term trends show global climate is warming. And claims denying that greenhouse gas emissions or, uh, or human activity contribute to climate change. So even if you're a person who says, yeah, absolutely, climate change is legit, but I doubt it's anthropogenic. If you're that guy, i.e. me, um, you're, what, fucked. But here's the other thing, too. Even if, even if anthropogenic, climate change, anthropogenic climate change is a real thing even if there is data to back that up which is questionable by the way this 97% number is not for anthropogenic climate change um it's for climate change generally that 97% of scientists agree the climate is changing that's true not 97% agree it's anthropogenic it's less than that um in any case what was i saying oh if you're even if even if anthropogenic climate change is real what happens to a guy who also has Frankly, I can only think of this in terms of the way that I think. What happens to a guy who's of the opinion that, yeah, okay, fine. Climate change is real. Anthropogenic climate change is real. But individual people are such a small contributor to greenhouse gas emissions that individual people being forced to buy battery-driven Lawn equipment. This is something I, I'm probably not going to cover, but uh, California. There was recently a Newsom signed a law that would outlaw gas leaf blowers, lawn mowers, and uh, what it was it, weed eaters? Was that the other one? Uh, by 2024, I think was the was the year. Jesus Christ. Anyway, what that changes nothing. That changes absolutely nothing. There is no there. There's there's no. Uh, it, India, China, especially state-owned industry in China. Industry in the United States. I mean, these are the big polluters. These are the, these are the people responsible for greenhouse gas emissions. You and I are contributing next to nothing on the grand scale. Which, by the way, when you're talking about global climate change, the grand scale is all that matters. People can feel very good about themselves driving around in a Prius or a Tesla. <sighs> I was about to talk about the lithium. Never mind. People can feel very good about themselves driving around in a Prius or a Tesla, but that doesn't change the fact that you're having no effect as an individual. I drive my bike around in Los Angeles because I care about the environment. You've changed nothing. Good for you, but you're just you're you're just making your life more difficult. <laughs> and and there's no gain on the other side. <laughs> Anyway, so what happens to that opinion? What happens to that point of view? Even if you accept the quote-unquote scientific consensus, which is misrepresented largely, even if you accept that, but you say, but here's the reality of the statistics. Here's who's actually producing greenhouse gases. And here's why you, as an individual consumer, are not going to change anything. You can't change anything. What happens to that point of view? They, or do the ads go away for them, too? Because I know that's a common point of view. I, I know it's a common point of view. The doomers are taking over. Everybody in Gen Z understands that they've got no power. So are they all, Are they going to lose ad revenue? I don't know. So here's an interesting thing. Moving on. There you go. You want to you change greenhouse gas emissions. How about airlines? So there's been conversation about Southwest Airlines. And all of their delays, there have been multiple delays, flight delays, from Southwest Airlines uh, all along the East Coast. It was really bad in Florida. They're blaming weather and some, uh, some equipment malfunctions and things like that, but there are people, individuals, claiming that the pilots are uh, not showing up for work, that they are protesting the vaccine mandates by calling in sick or just not showing up. Causing these flight delays and issues. Now, I want to be very clear about this. I think it's certainly, it's certainly more likely, in my view, that it's a pilot's uh, union move, as opposed to weather and some other issues. But the problem is, we can't, I can't find personally any official uh, recognition that it is a sick out or a walkout. From the pilots. I can't find that anywhere. Which makes sense, because it would behoove Southwest not to tell you, and it would behoove the Pilots' Union not to tell you. So I can understand why there's no official recognition of this fact. But even even some of the sources that are saying this is a pilots' sick out, a pilots' walk out, I'm thinking... I'm supposed to trust your anonymous source, your, your, so you say it's trustworthy. There's a tweet that was going around. A trustworthy source has told me that this is a pilot thing. And then they post all this stuff about the delays. And it's like, I, I get it. I get it. And I'm sure your friend is not a liar, but I, I, I don't know that. You know what I mean? There's no real official confirmation and I, I don't like it. Uh, this is the thing. I don't like it when a story becomes the narrative before it's been verified. We saw this with bats and pangolins in, uh, with the COVID outbreak. The story became the narrative before it was verified. And I, I, don't, I hate that. I hate that. I fucking hate it. So I want to be careful with this, this Southwest thing that the story doesn't become the narrative before there's official verification. But I do have some interesting stuff that I can bring to the table that I haven't seen a lot of people talk about. But first, we're going to get a little bit of background. We're going to go to CBS News, published on the 12th. Southwest Pilots Union president blames airline for widespread cancellations. Quote, we've been sounding this alarm for about four years. Southwest Airlines is experiencing a fifth straight day of widespread cancellations. Early numbers show 7% of Southwest flights have been canceled today. On Monday, uh, 435 Southwest flights were canceled, bringing the total to above 2,000 cents Friday. Some Southwest passengers have had to pick between paying for other transportation or staying put for days. It's not clear what's causing disruption, but the delays and cancellations began shortly after the pilots union tried to block Southwest's new COVID-19 vaccine mandate. I'll talk about that attempt to block that here in a bit. When asked by CBS News if there was any chance the disruption could have been caused by pilots calling out sick over the company's vaccine mandate, Captain Casey Murray, president of the Southwest Airlines Pilots Association, said that was not the case, that the airline pilot's sick rate for the weekend was right in line with what was occurring this summer. Quote, so outside of air traffic control and weather, you point the blame squarely where? CBS News correspondent Errol Burnett asks, quote, squarely on Southwest. I point to how they manage a network and how their uh, IT also supports that network. Once a little hiccup occurs due to internal processes, our pilots aren't getting to be where they uh, aren't getting to where they need to be. We've been sounding this alarm for about four years and have seen very little approach to correcting it, Murray said. Southwest has declined to comment on Murray's claims. It has confirmed staff shortages, but not due to the mandate. The airline says it's been the case since before the pandemic and blames weather and air traffic control issues for the cancellations. So, not even the president of the union will give an official verification that this is a walkout or a sickout. And it's it still may be. Again, it behooves them not to make the public aware of that. Part of the reason for that being... I mean, you know how fucking pissed off people get when a flight gets delayed. There's a certain degree... There's a certain point at which... I mean, the public will stand behind Kellogg's employees striking... But as soon as it affects their travel plans... Uh, you don't really have that support anymore. But... I did find on CourtListener... Luckily, some uh, some uh, wonderful people at... Uh, using the recap... R-E-C-A-P, that's pacer backward. Uh, some wonderful people have, uh, who use that have uploaded to Court Listener the uh, amended complaint and the motion for a restraining order and preliminary injunction uh, filed by the Southwest Airlines Pilots Association, SWAPA, against Southwest Airlines to enjoin the mandate. And what that means is the Pilots Association wants to legally block that mandate from coming to fruition. It's a very interesting thing. I downloaded this. I skimmed it. It's, you know, it's it's a motion. It's a motion to enjoin. But it's kind of interesting that this is all happening at the exact same time. This, this motion hit court listener on the 8th. And it says that it was uh, entered on the 8th which is just about when some of these problems started interdasting interdasting as they say in other legal news another josh blackman piece trust me i'm not i'm not stalking his blogging he just happened to write this and i wanted to read this story the vote conspiracy motions panel grants temporary administrative stay of sb8 ruling uh, published on the eighth, the Fifth Circuit, a Fifth Circuit panel uh, granted a temporary administrative stay on the SBA ruling. This ruling came a few hours after Texas filed an emergency motion with the Court of Appeals. The United States was directed to file a response by Tuesday, October 12th at 5 p.m. Presumably, the temporary administrative stay will last at least that long, if not longer. As of now, SBA is back in effect. Clinics have performed abortions over the past 48 hours may face liability in future suits. So, what happened? This is what happened. On the eighth. The Fifth Circuit stayed an injunction that had been granted by a district court, federal district court in Texas, when the DOJ sued to enjoin SB8. The Department of Justice sued to enjoin SB8. The Department of Justice has been really expanding its sort of uh, mandate recently. I believe they also investigated the Georgia election rules. Uh, and sued over that, but they went to Texas, the DOJ went to Texas, and said, okay, we have to enjoin, we have to get an injunction against SB-8, we have to stop SB-8 from going into effect. That was granted at the district court level. The state appealed to the Fifth Circuit, and the Fifth Circuit stayed the injunction, (laughs) which means that the injunction has now been frozen, and SB-8 is back in effect. This is a mess, but... What it looks like, and, and I think actually Blackman wrote something else on this, that there's, there's very little likelihood that the DOJ actually has a cause of action here, and they should be filing today. Um, we'll see what comes of this, but they should be filing their response today, by end of day. So SB8 is back in effect after having been enjoined for about 48 hours. It was back in effect on the 8th. Same day that those uh, motions were filed. Fr- it's very interesting. The legal world is, is really moving quickly these days. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, a, it's a weird thing to see, because usually you can trust, like, oh, okay. So this case just got out of district court. All right, I'm not going to hear about it again for a year. But um, not so, uh, because everything is being done with injunctions and mandates and things like that. Every- so everything's going much faster. Everything's being decided on an emergency basis. All right. This is an interesting story, also from Volk. Published on the 12th, School Board seeks to prevent web-posting of materials it released to fulfill Freedom of Information requests. It written by Jonathan Adler. The Goldwater Institute's Tim Schaefer reports on one of his organization's new cases. Quote, from the, uh, from... All of this is quoted from the Goldwater Institute. When Deborah Tisler and Callie Odeger of Fairfax County, Virginia, suspected their local school district was wasting taxpayer money on excessive legal fees... They did what responsible and engaged citizens do in a democracy. They asked to see the receipts. They have that legal right under the state's Freedom of Information Act, and the school board turned over 1,000 pages worth of information. Then it realized that something in there was embarrassing, and that's when things got ugly. The school board demanded that Callie remove the documents from the website where she'd published some of them after having redacted any confidential information. That's right. Callie blacked out personal info before posting the documents because the school board failed to do so. She had no legal obligation to do that. The U.S. Supreme Court's made it clear that you have a constitutional right to publish lawfully obtained information without the government, or I'm sorry, about the government. But she still chose to take that precaution. What wasn't enough for school bureaucrats, they filed a lawsuit against Cali. Uh, I'm sorry, that wasn't enough for school bureaucrats. They filed a lawsuit against Callie and Deborah, asking the state court to force Cali to take the documents off her website and to order Deborah to return them. That last part is bizarre since these aren't physical documents, just computer files, so it's not clear how you returned them. But in any event, the point was clear. School board officials are demanding censorship. The natural question to ask is why? What does the Fairfax County School Board not want the public to know? On Thursday, the board told reporters that Callie and Deborah publicized private information about other people's kids. That's a lie. Callie and Deborah never published private information about the kids or school employees. It is an intentional lie, too. How do we know? Because the board did not make that claim in the complaint it filed with the court. Instead, it only told the court that Callie and Deborah have documents the board doesn't want them to have. The board knows it would get in a lot of trouble if it told the judge that Callie and Deborah published any private information since it isn't true. In other words, the board is willing to lie to the press, but not to the court. Uh, and now back to uh, Jonathan's. Uh, this is the end of the copy-paste, and we're back to Jonathan. A state court apparently granted the school board's request and ordered the documents taken down. Tissler and Odinger have complied with this order pending a hearing later this month. Odinger's account of the school board's legal action is linked as Sandfeir explains, there is no basis for the court's order. As the First Amendment protects the distribution of lawfully obtained government documents, I would also note that it's ex- exceedingly difficult to make documents disappear once they've been posted on the web. Via the Wayback Machine, I found two additional posts of the documents that appear to have been taken down, perhaps in response to the court order. The demand to take down the documents is not only unlawful, it also appears to have been ineffective. Perhaps the issue is not merely how much the Fairfax schools are paying their lawyers, but also whether they're getting their money's worth. Uh, just a couple of more, just a couple more stories. No, one more story. I have one more story. <laughs> it's been it's been busy news, busy busy news. I'm actually happy to see it because you know during COVID there was no news, all the news was just COVID, um, and everybody knew it. That's the other issue too. This is the problem. This is the problem with major world shaking events that end everyone's lives for a moment. Is um, everyone knows the news. So, somebody like me who's like, hey man, I want to talk about the news and sort of, you know, tell people what I think about the news and, you know, look at the news through this lens. Everybody already knows the news. There's no, I'm not bringing anything new to the table. It's one of the reasons for that hiatus that I didn't have anything to offer. (sniffs) Moving on, though. I'm glad there's new news, is what I'm saying. New news. Did I say no news? New news. The 11th, published on the 11th, from Reason. Mom Sue's cops who arrested her for leaving a 14-year-old daughter home alone. A federal judge has ruled, I'm sorry, I didn't credit the uh Lenore Scenazzi, it looks like. I'm not I'm sure I got that last name wrong. A federal judge has ruled that two cops who work in a, at a public school in Midland, Texas, can be sued for seizing a 14-year-old from her family apartment because she was there alone. Despite her pleas, the officers did not let the girl call her parents for hours, nor would they let her pick up the phone when her father called. They also searched the family home without a warrant. School resource officers Kevin Brenner and Alexandra Weaver do not enjoy blanket qualified immunity, ruled U.S. District Judge David Counts, in a case that began with a mom making painstaking plans for her children's supervision when she had to be out of the country for five days and her husband was deployed overseas. In 2018... Megan McCurry was a special education teacher at Midland Junior High School, married to Adam McCurry, a soldier in the Mississippi Army National Guard. The family lives in six countries over the course of 10 years, and her kids were used to independence. When my daughter was 12, she'd walk down the streets of Shanghai to get donuts, says McMurray. When the family moved to Midland, the daughter Jade opted for online homeschooling. She was home alone for a good part of the day, which is perfectly legal, so long as the parent is not putting the child in harm's way. In the meantime, McCurry took her 12-year-old son Connor with her to the junior high across town where she worked. She ha- uh, He had perfect attendance. But when the family learned their dad overseas already was being mobilized for another stint in Kuwait, mcmur By the way, this is something Scott Horton talks about. What in the ever-living fuck is the Mississippi National Guard doing in Kuwait? Anyway. Oh, God. McMurray thought the family should consider moving there to be together. She had a job offer at a Kuwaiti school and wanted to visit it before making her decision. Her kids didn't want to come on the five-day trip, in part because Connor didn't want to ruin his birth attendance streak, so McMurray arranged for the kids to be in the care of neighbors, Vanessa and Gabe Viejos. Jade, the 14-year-old, babysat the Viejos family's six-year-old for several hours every afternoon, so the families were close. As for Connor getting to school, McMurray arranged for the school's counselor and another nearby neighbor to drive him. On Thursday night, October 5, 2018, she boarded the plane for Kuwait. On Friday morning, the school counselor realized she wouldn't be able to pick up Connor after all, and asked the school resource officer Weaver, who also lived nearby, to drive him home instead. Don't get the cops involved. Never get the cops involved. That's when things go wrong. When Weaver didn't answer her telephone, the counselor arranged for someone else to drive the boy, according to McMurray. Weaver called CPS to report the children left home alone. She also called her supervisors. Brunner and the two went to the McMurray home after a welfare check on i J- I'm sorry, for a welfare check on Jade. That's where things got ugly. The cops had the apartment building manager knock on the family's door. Jade answered, and the cops told her she shouldn't be home alone. Jade started crying and asked to call her dad, uh, but the cops wouldn't allow it. They did allow her to change into warmer clothes since they were going to take her away for an interrogation. While she was in her room, she managed to text her dad, I'm scared the police are here. Meanwhile, Weaver went rifling through the cabinets. The cops put Jade in the squad car and drove her... Oh, man. A cop going through the cabinets without a warrant. Ooh boy. Oh, boy. boy. The cops put Jade in the squad car and drove her to the middle school her brother was attending, according to McMurray. Body cam footage shows her crying and begging the cops to let her call her father, but they refused to do so. At the school, the cops kept Jade in their custody for several hours as they questioned her, asking things like, what, uh, Were you going to have a party? What the fuck? They pulled Connor out of class and questioned him, too. Meanwhile, CPS dispatched an investigator to the school. He asked the cops if they had called the parents. McMurray says, that when the cops said no, the CPS investigator was incredulous since that's the first thing they're supposed to do. Attorneys for Brunner and Weaver did not respond to requests for comment. The CPS investigator was dismayed that the cops had told his agency the children were abandoned at Truant because obviously Connor was at school and the cops were also aware that Jade was homeschooled. Believe it or not, Weaver and McMurray had been friends before this. When Jade explained the arrangements her mom had made for the supervision and CPS ascertained this was all true, it closed the case then and there, but the cops did not. When McMurray returned from Kuwait, she faced two felony charges of child abandonment. She turned herself in and spent 19 hours in jail before being released on bail. Long story short, almost a year later, she was suspended without pay the entire time. McMurray's case came to trial. Brunner claimed to be on a prearranged vacation. McMurray, eager to get the case heard, allowed the trial to proceed without him uh her neighbors the viejos testified the cps investigator and his supervisors testified the school counselor testified connor and jade testified when weaver asked uh, i'm sorry when weaver testified and was asked why she didn't let jade talk to her dad she replied she hadn't wanted to worry the man in fact here's some of the transcript question do you not remember jade telling you her dad was trying to call her and you told her not to answer that phone answer now that you stated that i do recall that occurring Question. So her father's trying to call her when you're taking her from her home to Able Middle School and you're telling her not to answer the phone when her father's calling. Answer. Correct. I didn't want to cause him any undue stress. Eat shit. The trial took four days. The jury deliberated for five minutes and found McMurray not guilty. Now McMurray is suing the officers for violating her fourth and 14th amendment rights as she should. Her suit alleges that they searched her home without a warrant and seized her daughter illegally. They did. The cops are not supposed to remove children from a home without alerting the parents unless there's an immediate threat to the child's life and limb. Since the law is so well established on these protocols uh, that the officers uh, had to have been aware of them, the federal judge has waived their plea for qualified immunity and is allowing the lawsuit to proceed. This is particularly sweet from Mary because she knows what actual abandonment looks like. Quote, my mother was a drug-addicted drug dealer, she says. I grew up in foster care from the time I was 11. I would be in a two-week shelter and then a 30-day shelter. You know how it goes. I went to 25 different high schools. By the time I graduated, it was a 4.0. It was her hard-won resilience that got uh, her to adulthood. And resilience is exactly what she and her husband are trying to instill in her kids. Yada, 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 yada. Uh, Down at the bottom. Quote, my parents have taught me to... Uh, Jade wrote that she wants everyone, quote, to know that these two officers did what these two officers did to me and my family for no reason. Quote, my parents have taught me to work hard for anything I want to self-advocate, wrote Jade. I may not have known my rights that day, but they definitely didn't inform me either. Uh, I knew what they were doing was wrong. So don't trust cops, even if it's your friend. (laughs) The story does point out that the that the the cop the uh, the woman here was friends with one of these cops uh before uh the cop went and kidnapped her children um and interrogated them and violated her fourth amendment rights by going through her cupboards without a warrant that is a clear violation it's not even plain view doctrine she went through cupboards that is a fourth amendment violation in any case i know that was a long story but i wanted to get through it because it's quite a good story because no qualified immunity. Qualified immunity was denied. Qualified immunity. Um, the, 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 let's go up to that justification. Let's see what from the story. Since the law is so well established on these protocols that the officers had to have been aware of them, the federal judge has waived her plea, uh, their plea for qualified immunity and is allowing the lawsuit to proceed. Qualified immunity basically says if the law is not, if the right that has been violated is not so well established that uh you couldn't expect the cop to know about it basically then qualified immunity applies what makes a right well established is there having been a case on it before in the jurisdiction uh so if there's no case on point in the jurisdiction for that right the right is considered not to have been well established uh generally that's how it's applied so if they've had a 4th amendment case uh in this i don't i'm not sure if they would have had a cops kidnapping kids case in this jurisdiction if they have that's great but i'm sure they've had a warrantless search case so they're they're they I would assume there should be no qualified immunity for going through her cupboards and, and going through her house and shit like that in any case that's it that's the last story for the day man i just i'm, I'm my throat hurts we've I've been going forever and ever and ever but uh, that's the show. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for rating on whatever uh, whatever platform you listen on. As I said before, I'm going to rebuild all of the uh, subscription stuff. If you're still on the Subscribestar, <clears throat> I ran into this the other day. If you're still on the Subscribestar, go ahead and close that. Uh, I can't close that until... Um, until there's no one on the account anymore so if you're still on the subscribe star i believe it's uh actually i, th- I think it's xercy and absurdist fool actually are still producers of the show in fact they were in the credits uh last episode uh i think that's who it is no i do know that's who it is if you're still on the subscribe star go ahead and and uh and jump off of that so that i can close that and i'm gonna go somewhere else and do something else i'm i'm I want to do something that's going to make it a little easier to do bonus content. I want to do something that's going to make it a little bit—it's uh, a, a little bit more built for my purposes. Um, so yeah, that'll be that'll be coming, but it'll be coming uh, later on. I got to build it all out. Uh, in the meantime, like I said, I just came off a long hiatus, so nobody should feel bad about not not uh, not supporting the show. Many of you supported the show through that hiatus, which allowed me to keep the website up. It allowed me to keep. Uh, it allowed me to keep the shows hosted, things like that. Um, so I'm, I'm very thankful for that uh, through that time. But I want to rebuild that stuff. So, uh, But again, thank you very much for downloading, for rating, for reviewing, for listening, for uh, telling a friend, if you want to tell a friend about it, about the show. And that's it. That's it for today. Thanks so much.